It is October 27, 2004. It's Game 4 of the World Series, St. Louis. The home team, the St. Louis Cardinals, are on the ropes. Led by one of the greatest players in MLB history, Albert Pujols, the Cardinals played a commanding regular season, winning 105 out of 162 games. They beat the Los Angeles Dodgers 3-1 in the divisional round and Houston in seven games in the National League Championship Series. But now the Cardinals were headed to the World Series. A commanding presence, a star in Albert Pujols, a famous coach in Tony La Russa leading them, and the momentum of a hard-fought playoffs heading into the final series of the year. But the Game 7 victory in the NLCS was the last game that the St. Louis Cardinals would win that year. They came into the World Series with history on their side, a curse on their side. They were playing against a team that hadn't won the World Series in nearly a century. But when the Cardinals finally made it to the World Series, they met a buzzsaw that they weren't predicting. They fought hard in Game 1 only to lose 11-9, they were easily beaten in Game 2, 6-2, and in Game 3 they only scored one little run, it was 4-1 by the time it was over. That was because the pitcher for the opposing team pitched 7 innings with no runs, more on that in a moment. Now it was Game 4, playing in front of their own home crowd. The Cardinals were trying to keep their hopes alive, but destiny was not with them. They registered only 4 hits in 9 innings and no runs. They were swept in the World Series, losing Game 4 at home. But no one remembers that the St. Louis Cardinals were even in the 2004 World Series. In fact, I'll bet if you ask baseball fans who played in the 2004 World Series, some, myself included, would struggle to recall who was playing for the National League. That's because the only thing that anybody remembers about the 2004 World Series is the winners, the Boston Red Sox. If you're a Yankees fan like me, that was an international tragedy in 2004. I remember those days very clearly, and the Red Sox fans in my life speak with such reverence about October of 2004, as if divine intervention led the Red Sox to the World Series that year. It wasn't divine intervention, in fact, it was just a damn good baseball team. Led by two of the best pitchers in Red Sox history, Kurt Schilling and Pedro Martinez, and with an offense built around the powerful combination of David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez, the Boston Red Sox were a force to be reckoned with. Their manager was Terry Francona, a beloved figure in baseball to this day where he now manages the Cleveland Guardians. Back then, he managed the Red Sox to a 98-win season. They swept the Angels in the divisional round and met up with their rivals in the championship series the Yankees. The Yankees had won three World Series in a row just a few years earlier, 98, 99, and 2000. A dynasty was alive and well in New York, led by Captain Derek Jeter, the most hated man in Boston. And in the championship series between the Sox and the Yankees, the Yankees had bullied their rival through the first three games. They just won easily in those first three games, but it was game four now. It was the ninth inning and the Yankees were about to sweep and move on to the World Series, destroying their rival and moving on to winning yet another World Series. But the Red Sox mounted a comeback, scoring in the ninth inning to tie it and take the game to extra innings. Through those extra innings, nobody scored until David Ortiz hit a massive two-run walk-off home run. Hope was alive in Beantown, and the Yankees started to get a little nervous. Game 5 went into the 14th inning and ended in another walk-off, another David Ortiz hit. He yet again smacked the ball, this time just a single, but it was enough to drive in the runners, winning the game 5-4. to four. 
Game 6 was a dominant game by Curt Schilling for the Red Sox. He was injured, and over the course of the game, the pitcher's sock became soaked with blood. The game became infamously known as the Bloody Sock Game, and the Red Sox beat the Yankees 4-2. Now it was all knotted up. It was tied. It came down to Game 7. But it was a heartbreaker, a blowout. 10-3 Red Sox. The Yankees never had a chance. Boston mounted the biggest comeback in the American League Championship Series up to that point. The Yanks went home, and riding the power of that comeback, the Red Sox went into the World Series hungry for more. Yankees fans, I'm sorry you had to hear that. It was tough to read. The momentum for the Red Sox, however, never slowed down. The offense was dynamic, and the pitching was unbeatable. As I mentioned earlier, Pedro Martinez pitched seven shutout innings in Game 3 of the World Series. Kurt Schilling continued to pitch injured. David Ortiz continued to hammer the ball in big moments. And in Game 4, in the bottom of the ninth, a little ground ball was knocked through the infield. It was easily tossed to first base, and just like that, the Sox had won seven straight games, swept the World Series, and became World Champions. But I tell you all these details make you know how important it is because it is important for baseball history. It's because this wasn't just any victory for any old baseball team. It was the breaking of a curse. The Red Sox had not won the World Series since 1918, and in 2004, the curse of the Bambino was broken. The curse that had followed the Red Sox since the one and only Babe Ruth was bought by the Yankees in 1920. People say that when Babe Ruth went to the Yankees, it cursed the Red Sox forever. They had not won a World Series since 1918 with Babe Ruth on their team, and now in 2004, that curse was broken. But before that move was made, before Babe Ruth was moved to the Yankees, where was Babe Ruth? Well, he was not only playing for the world champion Red Sox, he was also getting ready for the 1919 season in Tampa, Florida. And it was there that he might have made some history. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Spring training starts this weekend, so in honor of that, we are talking about one of the most important baseball players in American history, Babe Ruth. How the Sultan of Swat made history in the Sunshine State, and how that history has been disputed over the last century of baseball. Because Babe Ruth hit a lot of home runs, and a lot of home runs have been hit in the last century. And it very well may be that Babe Ruth hit the longest home run of his career in Tampa. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's meet the legend, the one and only George Herman Ruth Jr., the Babe. Born in 1895, George was raised by a poor family growing up along the waterfront in Baltimore, Maryland. George grew up on the streets, drinking and thieving his way through his childhood. He was sent away to a school called an industrial school, clearly somewhere to temper that bad behavior of his, but baseball was really the path out. His natural talent got him a minor league deal when he was just 19, playing in the minor league for the Baltimore Orioles. The man who hired him was named Jack Dunn, and one article at the time apparently referred to George as one of quote-unquote Dunn's babes, so Babe stuck around. Babe Ruth was his name. And while we think today of Babe Ruth as one of the most significant hitters in baseball history, the reality is that he was also a pitcher. In fact, he first made an impact 
as a pitcher. That's what first brought him to the attention of the minor league in the first place and into the first team that would define his career, the Boston Red Sox. Formed in 1901 and originally called the Boston Americans, the Boston Red Sox changed their name to the Boston Red Sox because of the red stockings that the players wore on their feet. That was a common naming convention at that time, back in the early years of baseball. There had actually been a previous team called the Boston Red Stockings. They were repeat champions for the first ever professional baseball league, back then called the National Association. The original Boston Red Stockings won four championships back then. You want to know when that was? It was the 1870s. The 1870s, it's it's baffling to me that baseball is that old. I can't believe that it was being played in like the decade after the Civil War. The Boston Red Stockings were world champions. Like, I mean, there were still cowboys back then. It's hard for me to <laughs> It's hard for me to even process that there was a time in American history where there were cowboys and also baseball players. Anyway, the Red Stockings were now the Red Sox. It was the turn of the century, and by the time the Red Sox got a hold of Babe Ruth, they were already a team with a reputation. They had won the World Series twice by that point, once in 1903, but more recently that time in 1912. Now it's 1915, and with a war raging in Europe, baseball truly was America's pastime. Babe Ruth came to the team and immediately was a sensation. I'm just going to read you this quote verbatim from Britannica, and we'll dissect it right after. This is just the kind of skills that Babe Ruth had at his disposal. Quote, Ruth soon became the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. Between 1915 and 1919, he won 87 games, yielded a stunning earned run average of only 2.16, won three World Series games, one in 1916 and two in 1918, and during a streak for scoreless World Series innings set a record by pitching 29 and two-thirds consecutive shutout innings, end quote. That's 89 batters in a row over the course of several games facing Babe Ruth, the pitcher, and not scoring any runs. That was unheard of at the time. The feat has been broken. The current record for innings without a run is 59, held by Oral Hershiser of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He set that record in 88. But Babe Ruth was setting a new standard of the kind of talent that could be on the field. The Red Sox won the World Series three times with Babe Ruth leading the charge, and those numbers are just with his pitching performance. He was an amazing hitter. That's probably what you know him for. Up until 1919, the record for most home runs in a single season was 27, hit in 1884, over 30 years earlier. With 29 in 1919, Babe Ruth broke that record too, the kind of thing you just didn't see at that time. Baseballs fly nowadays, home runs are much easier in the MLB than they were in 1919. It was remarkable at that time for Babe Ruth to be doing that, and he was just... He was just doing that and also pitching baseball games. I mean, he was amazing. Babe Ruth had the power, and he was making rival teams pay on either side of the ball. He was a powerhouse, and it made his status in American culture rise immediately. There had never been anyone like him in the game. And historians believe that his power was only just one part of his rise to stardom. It was also because America at the time of Babe Ruth needed a hero. The information in this next section comes from a 2020 Smithsonian Magazine article titled When Babe Ruth and the Great Influenza Gripped Boston. It was written by Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith. Go check out the whole article. It's in the episode description. It is a fascinating read. 
1918 was a hard time, familiar times to right now in more ways than one. In 1918, with Babe Ruth at the height of his powers, the Boston Red Sox on their way to another World Series victory, a pandemic hit the United States, the 1918 Influenza. In the spring of 1918, it spread quickly across the United States and everyone was affected, Babe Ruth included. Babe Ruth went to Revere Beach with his wife. They know the exact day, May 19, 1918. That night, Babe Ruth had a fever of 104 degrees. The next day, Babe was scheduled for a baseball game. Quote, he showed up at Fenway looking like a ghost, feeling miserable, obviously ill, and in no condition to take the field, but determined to throw nonetheless. End quote. Treatment at the time was less than easy, and Babe Ruth's condition worsened over the course of a few days until the Boston Herald and Journal reported he was feeling better, citing, quote, Babe's great vitality and admirable physical condition, end quote. They also said, quote, the prophecy now is that the big lad will be out of the hospital in four or five days, end quote. He did indeed improve, and he was back with the team in June. But an interesting thing was happening in the profile of that slugger nationally. You see, World War I was raging in Europe at the time. The war would be over by November, but Boston newspapers were comparing the power of Babe Ruth to the power of American forces in the war, especially comparing his strength in overcoming influenza and on the field to that of the soldiers fighting in Europe. Speaking about how soldiers felt about Babe, the Boston Herald and Journal wrote, quote, in Italy, in Normandy, in Alsace, and in a few hundred camps along the firing line, men meet and ask for the latest news of the gifted hitter of home runs, end quote. They go on to say, quote, It lightens and breaks the tension of a soldier's duty, and it's not stretching a point to say that in his own inimitable way, the Colossus is contributing a worthwhile gift to the morale of Uncle Sam's fighting men, both in the new and the old world. He is the hero of all present-day baseball, end quote. If that doesn't make you an American hero at that time, I don't know what does. If soldiers are looking up to you while they're in war, if they're waiting to hear the good news about how successful you are in baseball games, I mean, if that does not make you a, an icon of American culture, I don't know what does. So all eyes were on Babe Ruth. He wins the World Series in 1918, and now, in 1919, the war was over now. Soldiers were coming home, and they could see the games. People were fascinated by Babe Ruth and what he would do in the new season ahead. All eyes were on the Bambino. Which is when Florida enters the picture. Spring trading began for the 1919 season. Teams had been making their way to Florida to prepare for the season ahead for a long time by the time the Boston Red Sox would arrive that year. Baseball first did spring training in Tampa in 1899, though the first spring training in Florida was in Jacksonville a few years earlier. Maybe we'll talk about that next year. But it wasn't until the 1910s that spring training was a regular occurrence in Tampa, specifically at Plant Field, named for Henry Plant, the railroad tycoon built on the property of the Tampa Bay Hotel, Plant's most significant property. Today, that property is the home of the University of Tampa. If you've never paid it a visit, I cannot recommend it enough. They have an excellent museum. Plant Field is gone now, but it was, at the time, a perfect place for baseball to be played, for teams to get ready, and for crowds to rush in to see baseball before the season started proper. An occurrence we still do as baseball fans. I'm literally seeing the Yankees three times before the season starts at spring training games here in Florida. My first game is actually this upcoming Sunday. That's how eager I am to see the Yankees. 
For most of the 1910s, the team to see at Plant Field was actually the Chicago Cubs, who played from 1914 to 1916 at Plant Field. But in 1919, who came to Plant Field but the Boston Red Sox, the reigning champions. They've won three of the last four World Series championships, and people were expecting to see the hero. Babe Ruth, they, they were the team to beat, and now they had a star amongst their ranks, someone that Americans wanted to see, and they were here on the shores of Tampa Bay. But the problem was, Babe Ruth wasn't in Florida, not yet. That spring was the beginning of the end for Ruth's career with the Red Sox. Ruth knew his value to the team and was asking for more from the Red Sox in order to remain on the team, a much higher salary. This is common, including today, for high-performing players on a team, especially for the leading performer for a team. Just this offseason, after he broke the record for American League home runs, Aaron Judge signed a nine-year, $360 million contract to remain with the New York Yankees. The numbers back in the 1910s were much smaller, but still significant for their time. Ruth was asking for $15,000 to return to the Red Sox, and he requested to no longer be a pitcher. He wanted to be in the outfield. He wanted to hit. He didn't want to pitch. For context, by the way, that, that 15000 that he was asking for, today that would be about $250,000, a little bit more, about two fifty nine. That's about a quarter million dollars. Even with the changing prices over a century, today's pay for baseball players is astronomically higher. But what Ruth was asking for, fifteen dollars that was nothing to sneeze at at the time. And the Sox only offered him 8000 quote, citing low attendance, end quote. A bold move, I'd say. They, they didn't know the mistake they were making. Quote, the team left for Tampa without Ruth, and rumors proliferated around Boston that the Babe would try his hand at boxing. End quote. If you've ever seen a picture of Babe Ruth, I'm sure you're not surprised. I certainly wasn't that Babe Ruth could have been a boxer. He, he was a big guy. <laughs> but eventually, the Red Sox settled on a better deal. $27,000, quote, spread out over three years, end quote. A better contract, but as time would tell, not enough to keep Babe around. Either way, with the contract in place, Babe made his way down to Tampa to train for the season at last. It was a Friday, April 4th, 1919. Babe Ruth's Boston Red Sox were playing the New York Giants. It was Babe's first game of the year, the first time he was playing in a spring training game in 1919. An article from the Tampa Times published the next day on April 5th notes the events in charming detail. The headline, quote, Great crowd watched Boston defeat Giants in fast game, end quote. The article describes an outfielder for the Giants watching a home run sail from Babe Ruth's bat far beyond his reach. We'll come back to that in just one moment. The reporters describe the game as such, quote, It was a great game, that Red Sox-Giants affair at Plant Field yesterday afternoon, watched by the biggest gathering that ever looked on a ball game out there. It looked like World's Championship stuff. That is, the Giants found out just how hard it would be to beat the Red Sox if they, the Giants, win the National League race, end quote. That crowd, by the way, was reported by the Boston Herald as, quote, some 3,500 rooters, end quote. Never heard a crowd described as rooters, odd word. The Giants apparently played a strong game against the championship Red Sox, but they were no match for old Babe Ruth. Quote, it was Ruth's day to get the longest hit of his career, the longest hit seen at Plant Park, and the longest hit McGraw ever saw, he said, 
end quote. McGraw being John McGraw, the manager of the New York Giants for 30 years from 1902 to 1932. He even played sometimes and managed, which was a common practice at that time, but McGraw had been around the game and he claimed that that was one of the longest homers he'd ever seen, so people took it pretty seriously. He wasn't wrong. Writers had the outfielder, Ross Youngs, the man I described earlier, the man who watched the ball sail over his head, they had Ross Youngs. They made this guy help them figure out how far the ball went. It's, it's pretty good. They, they, they literally were like, come here, come, come out to the outfield. We're going to figure out how far this ball went. This is from Tampa Historical. Quote, following the game, legend has it that a group of sports writers had Youngs stand in the spot where the ball fell and they measured the distance with surveyor's tape. End quote. They settled on a number, 587 feet. Now, Plant Field was torn down in 2002, 80-something years later, but the plaque still stands. If you go to the campus near business school, you can find the plaque where the ball allegedly landed all those years ago. The plaque reads, Babe's Longest Homer. And for a while, and still maybe today, it was considered the longest, or is considered the longest. Whether or not it is Babe Ruth's longest home run is actually up to you. It depends on a few qualifications. There's some big qualifications, so let's go through them, and then you tell me if you think this is Babe Ruth's longest home run. Let's settle on the number, 587. Was that the longest home run that Babe Ruth ever hit? Was that the longest home run that anybody ever hit? There's some who believe that it is. Well, Last year, the longest home run of the year, 2022, was hit by C.J. Crone of the Colorado Rockies, who hit the ball 504 feet. That is astounding, but it is slightly less impressive when I tell you that it was hit in Coors Field in Denver, Colorado, which is known for long home runs thanks to the low air density in the Mile High City. But not all homers just fly forever. Most are somewhere around 400 feet. The highest average home run length for 2022 was by a player named Ronald Acuna Jr., the star outfielder for the Atlanta Braves, who hit an average home run of 428 feet. So... Babe's 587 is impressive even by today's standards. However, we have a thing nowadays called StatCast. It's a program that accurately tracks these details to the best of its ability. Much different from a couple of guys who just kind of went out with a yardstick and did their best guess. They had a guy stand where he thought the ball landed, so it was guesstimating to say the least. We have a better way to track that now, and only a few people have ever come close to matching Babe's 587. A minor leaguer in 1987 named Joey Meyer hit one 582 feet in a minor league game. That's five feet shorter than Babe. My beloved Giancarlo Stanton hit one 504 feet in 2016. Again, Coors Field, so it really flew through the air because it was in Denver. There's a rumor that Mickey Mantle, Yankees legend, hit a, quote, 656-foot bomb in college, end quote. That's truly hard to believe, and also it's kind of a rumor anyway. Plus, it was in college, it wasn't in the professional leagues, we'll see. I'm not so sure I believe that story. But in 1953, an incorrect estimate said that Mantle hit a ball 565 feet. Assessment later said that it was more like 510, so there's precedent for incorrect tracking of baseball home runs at that time. But the only person who has truly come close to hitting a home run as far as Babe Ruth did in Tampa is Babe Ruth. 
<laughs> let's say that the 587 feet is the actual length. Let's say that, that there's no wiggle room there. Let's say that that is actually how far that ball went. It was still a preseason exhibition game, and wouldn't it be better if it was hit in a real game? Well, many reports from Ruth's lifetime stated that he would repeatedly hit homers over 600 feet, but there's literally no way to know if that's true. Nobody was tracking those properly. It, it seems more like people were estimating than actually getting numbers, so we'll never really know if Babe Ruth hit home runs over 600 feet. The only number that comes close, we have a specific number from Babe Ruth that could be an official number in an actual major league professional regular season game. It was in 1921, it was hit in Detroit, and it flew 575 feet. He was a Yankee by then, so it wasn't for the Red Sox, and it was just one of the 714 home runs that he smacked in his career, a record for most in a career that he held until Hank Aaron famously broke it, a feat we talked about last year. But here is my question for you. Here is the debate. All of these numbers, uh, we don't even know if we can hold them entirely true, but let's assume that they are. So 575 feet in Detroit, that's the longest accurately recorded in an actual game, but it is 12 feet short of the apparent homer that landed in the grass along Tampa Bay in 1919. That was 587. So... I guess I'll leave it up to you, since there's no clear answer. Did Babe Ruth hit his longest recorded home run in his career right here in the state of Florida? So you tell me, is the ball in Florida Babe Ruth's longest home run 587 feet at Plant Field, or was it 575 in Detroit? Which one counts? You tell me. I bet if we were there that day, we would swear that that baseball never really landed. If it did, I'm glad that it landed here in Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means the world to me and it helps the show grow to newer audiences so we can grow, so we can hear what they want to hear from the show. I always want the show to be evolving and your reviews help the show grow. You can also reach out to me and tell me what you like about the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod or you could send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. There are links in the episode description to some more of the articles referenced in this episode. There are some amazing research about Babe Ruth's history and some amazing research about those very, very long home runs. I will include links in the episode description to where you can read more about all of those topics. Thank you to all those wonderful journalists for all the effort that they put in so that I can share it with you in this episode. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. There is a lot more to the story of Babe Ruth and the Red Sox and the Yankees and a lot more to Babe Ruth in Florida. We will talk about that in a future episode. I'm very much looking forward to it.
All right, that is it for me this week. If you're a baseball fan, I hope you are excited for spring training. I know that I am. I cannot wait for this season to get started, and I can't wait to talk about baseball more on this show. You know I'm gonna. Can't help myself. But next week, we are not going to be talking about baseball. Next week and the week after, in fact, we're going on a bit of an adventure, a road trip to do some uh, follow-ups and to find some new stuff along the way. So next week, we're going on a road trip up to Gainesville. I cannot wait to tell you about it. And then the week after that, we're going to be in the panhandle looking for an old friend. So until next week, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water and go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday.